Hello, it's Bernard Nomberg with the Nomberg Law Firm in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you for stopping by the Nomberg Law Live podcast. Each week I have discussions with interesting people in their areas of expertise, and this episode certainly fits that bill. Galen McCullough is an internationally renowned and known facial plastic surgeon. Galen has been doing these types of surgeries and this type of medicine for more than four decades. He's based out of Gulf Shores, Alabama, but his practice is all over the world. Galen has created innovative techniques in this area of facial plastic surgery and teaches and shares his knowledge with many, many people. Galen also played football at the University of Alabama for Coach Paul Bear Bryant. And we're going to talk about how his career was shaped by those experiences and what he's done since and many, many other things. So thank you guys for stopping by and listening to Nomberg Law Live podcast. We'd love it if you'd give us a five-star rating, give us a review, and a subscription. We try to put out episodes each Monday. Thank you again for listening to Nomberg Law Live podcast. This is Bernard Nomberg. It's another episode of Nomberg Law Live, and I am so pleased to have Dr. Galen McCullough as my guest this morning. Good morning, Galen. How are you? I'm fine, Bernard. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate you giving me some of your time today. For those of you who don't know Dr. McCullough, he is one of the foremost facial plastic surgeons in the world. He hails from Enterprise, Alabama. He was an All-American center for Coach Bear Bryant in the 1960s, and he is all now, now he is a, it seems to be almost annually, uh, you were putting out a book for the last 15 years or so. You've been a busy man. I have. Uh, Writing has become my avocation. I still practice. My vocation is facial plastic surgery, and I still have a full-time practice and run an institute and clinic here in Gulf Shores. But whenever I'm not here at the clinic, I'm I'm writing. Um, I used to play a lot of golf, and I used to fish, and I used to hunt. And now then, when I have free time, I get behind my computer, and, and I write books. And you're right. I've written a book a year for the last, actually, the last 16 to 17 years. So I'm, I've got two more books right now on the, on the, on the assembly line, I guess you would say. And hopefully, they'll be published within the next year. Well, the, the last thing as, as way of an intro, uh, for full disclosure, I'm also proud to call you my uncle. So I wanted to, to make the, the audience aware of that you, as well. I'm proud to call you my, my nephew. I'm very, very proud of your success and David's success. And what the two of you have done is really admirable. So good job, buddy. Well, thank you. And I know the last year or two when we've visited down in Gulf Shores with you and with Susan, you have been very busy writing your most recent book. Victory in the Game of Life, and I know you're very proud of that, and I'd like to, to talk about it a little bit. If you'd share with us, what was the genesis? What, Where did you get the ideas, or where did you start for the idea for this book? Well, the cover of the book has a photograph on it, and that's uh, me standing at midfield at Bryant-Denny Stadium, and I just received the Paul W. Bryant Alumni Athlete Award. And I was standing there looking up at the stands, and there were 100,000 people in the stands. And when I played there, they had about 20, we had 25 or 30,000 people that attended the games. And it was really, almost, it was an awe-inspiring experience. And 
I could hear when the crowd was not roaring. I could hear Denny chimes over in the background. And I was really moved by that event. I had stood on that same plot of land several times in my life. As a high school senior, I played in the high school all-star game and was a defensive captain and was out at midfield for the toss of the coin. And then several times at Alabama, I was also at midfield for the toss of the coin. But I, I was back there that day for a totally different reason, and that was to receive that award. And so on the way home, I just started thinking about it. And I decided that I would write a book, which would be my memoirs. And it's really dedicated to all the people who I felt were responsible for my having received that award and being there. Um, my parents, of course, my teachers, my, my coaches, uh, anybody, uh, my instructors, anybody that, that had an impact on my life and I felt them responsible. So that's what the book is about. It is about struggles. It's about the good times. It's about bad times. It's about ugly times. It, uh, it's, it's the memoir, and I tell the story just as it unfolded, and I hope that it will inspire and encourage other people to uh, set their sights high and try to achieve good things. One of the, the themes that kept coming to me as I was reading the book was not everything in life is going to be great every day. It's almost as if you have to overcome things that may be ad adversity in your life and how to deal with those. Would that be a, a, a fair assessment or a fair description? You know, there was a song several years ago, maybe when you were a little boy, called Some Days Are Diamonds and Some Days Are Stones. And mm -hmm. some days the, the bad times won't leave me alone. And so I, I think those, those words, those lyrics hold true. You're right. Just about the time that you think life is going along and everything is, is okay, life uh, reaches up and slaps you down. And uh, the winners in life are the ones that get up and dust off and keep coming back and keep coming back. Uh, it's not easy. The, the road to the top is, is a long struggle and you're going to slip and fall from time to time. But the whole story is how to get up and to overcome the adversity that you just mentioned. Well, I, I, I know that receiving the, the Paul Bryant Alumni Athletic Award is, is quite meaningful to you. That's, that's obvious and, and apparent the way that it comes out in the book and from our prior conversations. Take us to that day for a minute. You, you described a few minutes ago about standing there and back in the day it was a much smaller crowd, but clearly you were, you were in a world of thought as you're standing on the same place where you used to play and, and, and for the Tide back in the day. And so take us back to a little over a year ago that what were you feeling that day? What were you thinking? Well, I used the term awe-inspiring earlier, and that's the only way I can describe it. It was really overwhelming uh, for many reasons, Bernard. Number one is that I was on that plot of land, and I looked up at the stadium and, and all of those people there, and I thought, all of these people, look at the effort that they make to come to a football game. Look at the money that it costs them. Look at the time that it costs them to travel here. And just to sit and watch a group of, of 18 and 22 year old boys play. And I thought, you know, we really sometimes don't appreciate them. I know you played at Vanderbilt. And uh, we sometimes, when we were in the middle of all of that, did not really appreciate the efforts that people made to come and attend a football game. That was going through my mind. And then, uh, the faces and names of all the people that were responsible for my having been there in the first place. 
uh, even as a high school senior, I began to think about them. And then those that were responsible, uh, of course, when I played at Alabama. Coach Bryant, of course, bigger than life, and he still is in my mind. And not a day goes by that I don't think about him and, and put the, could use some lesson. But that day just was so inspiring to me that I thought, I've got to share this. And so I decided on the way home, Susan and I were coming on the way home in the van, and I pulled out my pad and I started writing notes. And I, and I, I thought, well, I'm going to share it, and it's going to be my memoir. And the game of life is something that I've thought about a long, long time. And life is very much like a game, and, and a football game. You know, we have four quarters, and in life we have four quarters too. If you think about it, the first quarter of our life is those, the, the developmental years, the educational years. We're taking in things, we're taking in information, we're finding out who we are, we're identifying our talents, and we're developing the ones that we, we feel like that we should develop. And then I think sometimes you have to abandon the ones and move on that, that maybe you're not suited for. And then in the second quarter of our life, we are still, we go out into the world and we put those things that we've learned to use. And we're testing, we're seeing how we measure up now against the world based upon our own experiences and our education. And uh, that's in the developmental stage too, as far as our profession is concerned. Well, then you get over into the third quarter of life. And those should be the goal, the, your most productive years because you're really reaping the benefits of the efforts. That's sometime between maybe 40 and 60 years of age. Those should be your, your, your really prime years. And you get a chance to enjoy things and you travel and, and, and you reap the benefits of your hard work. And then you move over into the fourth quarter. And the fourth quarter, the golden years, so to speak. And fourth quarter has always been very important. And if, if you look at the photograph on the cover of the book, I'm, I'm holding four fingers up and I'm trying not to be too obvious with it, um, but I, it, it was a statement that I was making that I'm now in the fourth quarter of my life. And Coach Bryant used to talk about the fourth quarter. And it's interesting to see today in football games, the peewee or high school or college, everybody raises their four fingers at the fourth quarter. But I was at Alabama when that tradition started. And people really don't understand what that means. It does not mean it's the fourth quarter. Heck, you could look up at the scoreboard and tell it's the fourth quarter. That was a pledge that Coach Bryant challenged us to make before a big game. He said the game's going to be a tough game. He said who wins the fourth quarter is probably going to win the game. He said if we can keep it close in the fourth quarter, I think we've got a chance to win it. And he said, now at the beginning of the fourth quarter, I'm going to challenge you guys to do something. He's talking to the whole team and to the coaching staff. He said, I want you, you know where your mother and father are going to be sitting because you gave them the ticket. They're up there on the 50-yard line. And he said, I want you to turn to your mother and father to the stands and hold up four fingers. And what you're going to say with that pledge is I pledge to you that I'm going to do everything in my power to see that my team wins the fourth quarter. I'm going to, on every play, I'm going to give all the effort that I can to see that my team wins the fourth quarter. Then I want you to turn to your teammate and you hold up four fingers and you're making a pledge to each other. I'm going to do my part to make sure that we win the fourth quarter. And then he said, then look across the field 
and hold up your fingers to the opposite team. And you just very subtly say, we are out here to win the fourth quarter. And so if you win the fourth quarter, then chances are you're going to win the game. And our group, when I played, we were called the cardiac kids because we, we really did win a, a vast majority of our games in the last minute or so of the game. We, you know, we, we never went into a game wondering if we were going to win. Our question was how well are we going to play? So I, the book, Victory in the Game of Life, now is about my being in the fourth quarter. What am I going to do now? And it's not just a matter of sitting back and resting on one's laurels, so to speak, but how can you make a contribution? How can I continue to make a contribution in the fourth quarter of my life? Well, first of all, I keep coming to work every day. I love what I do, facial plastic surgery. I don't want to do anything else when I get up in the morning. But I, I think we also need to give back. The things that we've learned, the experiences that we have, I think it's really a requirement that we pass that on and we pay that forward. There's a, there's a, a biblical verse that says, and to whom much is given, much is required. And so those of us who have been given opportunities and, and maybe achieved some things, I really believe it's a responsibility for us to pass that on and to share those things with other people. And that's what, that's what I tried to do in this book, just to pass it all on. Well, I, I know that those lessons, as I read in the Wiregrass Academy of Hard Knocks, one of the chapters, and now I'm looking over your left shoulder, looking at it, seeing a lovely picture of your parents. I want you to take us back to, to Enterprise, to the Wiregrass, and some of those life lessons that you now instill uh, to those who you're around and have been. And, and I know you speak all the time uh, to local teams or schools or, or organizations. Talk to us about those beginnings, the Wiregrass. Well, you know, there's a story about Enterprise, Alabama, and the Wiregrass. And the, there's a monument right in the middle of Main Street, a monument to the Bull Weevil. It's, a, it's the only monument erected to a pest in the world, and it used to be in the history books. And the history is that, and the story is, that cotton was the primary source of the economy in that part of the world, in that part of the country. And the Bull Weevil came across the South and literally wiped out the cotton crops. And so the city, that whole area was in dire straits. And so what they did, the townspeople got together and they said, we've got to come up with another plan, with, with another option. And so they went to Tuskegee, Alabama, and they brought George Washington Carver down to the area and he tested the soil and found out that the soil was really better for growing peanuts than it ever was for cotton. And so the townspeople in the area, that whole region of county, Houston County and, and Dale County and Coffee County, um, they changed over and started growing peanuts. And lo and behold, the economy boomed and was even better than it was during cotton. So uh, they erected a monument to, to the bull weevil. But it showed the grit that the people in that area, they were not willing to give up. They weren't going to move away. They were found a way out of the, of the adversity. So that's the heritage that you and I and other people who grew up in that area have. And we're told that story from the time we're small children. And so I think that they're indoctrinating us to, to, to be able to overcome things. Well, I was extremely fortunate. My mother and father, I'm an only child. I wish I had brothers and sisters. But my mother and father did everything that they could do to see that I got an education. My dad was a, a small town plumber. And my mother worked in the shop doing, uh, she was a receptionist and, and did some bookkeeping and made appointments. 
And so we were literally a lower middle income family. You know, we had plenty to eat, but we didn't have a lot of other things. Um, and so they instilled a, a hard work ethic, work ethic on me and the desire to give an education, the importance of an education. And when I was a teenager, I was, I was a little fat kid. I was not a very good athlete. As a matter of fact, I couldn't even spell slow. I was so slow and I was clumsy. And so I, I never thought I was going to be an athlete. And I actually um, ended up playing trumpet in the band. And then well, lo and behold, I started growing taller and I started working on my speed and ultimately wound up being the starting quarterback on the high school team my uh, my junior year. And that's a whole other story that I won't get into uh, right now. We'll talk about it later. But it is a story about starting over in adversity. But yeah, the, the townspeople there, my teachers and the mayors and the, and the city council were all devoted to young people. And I think they still are. And I'm a, I'm a product of that and a, and a proud product of that. And I, I wouldn't have taken it any other way. I want to I want to read a quote from the book, and I want you to, to share your thoughts about this, if you will, please. Planning, organization, hard work, fair play, and self-assessment are the keys to achieving any goal, regardless of the arena. What does that mean to you? Well, it means that's the lesson that I took away from uh, not only Coach Bryant, but uh, my high school coach. Uh, all of the people that I've been around, and I've been very fortunate to be around a lot of women, uh, I, I took note, mental note, about what made them successful. And that uh, sentence that you just read there, that is the key to success, no matter what it is, whether it's in athletics or whether you're going fishing or going hunting or you're building a law practice. Whatever you do, those, those, those elements that you read are the keys to success. And not just when you get there, but if you remember organization and reassessing too, that comes into play. If you're going to to stay on top, you, you can't let off let you put off the, the pedal. You've got to continue working hard because when you stop doing that, you're starting to lose. And, and I think that that applies to every generation. You know, we're living in the world of instant gratification social media, phones are in your face, no one's talking, no one's looking at each other. How do those life lessons apply to the younger generation who this is what they're growing up with? It's so much different from your childhood and my childhood. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Bernard, because this is, a, I would say, a pet peeve of mine. And, and it's something anytime I talk to a group of young people, I try to stress. We mentioned that I grew up in a rural community and I had an uncle that had a farm outside of Enterprise and I spent a lot of time on the farm. And when I was coming along, he didn't have electricity until I was in high school and they didn't have um, a bathroom until I went to college. And so I lived a, a lot of nights and spent a lot of nights and a lot of weekends in those surroundings. But um, I also, during that period of time, did a lot of hunting and I did still hunting. And that means you go down in the woods and you find, and we hunted squirrels, and you would find where the squirrel uh, den was going to be or was, and then you'd scratch out an area where you wouldn't make any sound. And you would literally sit there and be very, very quiet, sometimes for two hours, 
uh, early afternoon and waiting for the squirrels to come back in to their den. And if you made a sound, all of the efforts that you had put forth, they, were gonna, they would not come, so you'd wasted your time. So I had an opportunity to sit there for hours growing up there and fishing. I love to fish by myself. And when you're fishing and you're hunting, it's you, nature, and God. And you get to know a lot about who you are. And I would say that's when I learned who I am. That's when I learned what my, my dreams and my ambitions and my values are. And it concerns me today that young people don't do that. They don't have quiet time. They are constantly having a phone uh, in their hand or earphones on their ears, input constantly. Never an opportunity really just to sit, think, and assess. That, that really concerns me. And even when we were in school, we were required in grammar school to put our heads down on our desk for about 30 minutes after lunch. And I thought that was the stupidest thing in the world that we, had, we were forced to do that. But you know what? I think maybe they were pretty smart because they, all morning they were throwing things at us, you know, information. They were getting ready to do that in the afternoon. And those 30 minutes where you were just quiet, you couldn't speak, you couldn't raise your head, you just had to keep it down. And uh, nobody ever fell asleep. But no, that Dale, was quiet time. Don't tell dad or, or anybody else in the family, but I do that most afternoons after lunch myself. <laughs> good, for, good for you. Good for you, because I think we need that quiet time. That is a concern to me, though, that uh, the young generation just really, many times they don't really know who they are. They are the product of the things that are being fed into their brains and into their, into their eyes, and that, that does concern them. We should all be concerned about that. Thank you. For those of you just joining us, I'm talking with Dr. Galen McCullough from Gulf Shores, Alabama, and we are talking about life lessons. We're talking about Galen's most recent book, Victory in the Game of Life. And I want to pivot for just a minute and take us back to what I think was your last college football game. Was that the 1965 Orange Bowl? Yeah. Take us back to that time. I know that it's not a great memory, but there are great lessons that came out of that game. Joe Namath is your center. Coach Bryant is your coach. Some All-Americans on the Texas team. Take us to that day, that last play that uh, you've described so eloquently uh, in the book. Well, we had already won the national championship. In those days, the national championship was decided at the end of the season, and the bowl game didn't play into it at all. So we had already won the championship. We went down and played Texas, and Texas had a really good football team. And Joe Namath was injured, and Joe didn't start the game. His knee was bothering him, and so Steve Sloan started the game. And at halftime, we were down. I think we were down by 10 or 12 points. And we came at the, in halftime, and as Coach Brown often did, he changed the game plan. He threw out the game plan. Namath came into the game. We started passing on first and second down and running on third down. Long story short, we came back. And with less than a minute to go in the game, we had driven the ball all the way down the field and we were on the one yard line. Actually, we were on the one foot line. And it was fourth down and with less than a minute. So if we score, we win the game because the score was 22 to 17. So the touchdown alone without the extra point, we win the game. And Joe called a quarterback sneak right behind me. And so when the play was over, I started looking for Joe. And uh, we both were lying he was lying on top of me, and we were both in the end zone by a yard and a half, and the ball was well across the goal line. Well, the official from, from in the end zone came, took the ball away, raised his hand, called it a touchdown. 
the head linesman came running in and said, did he score? I couldn't tell because of the pilot. And the guy said, yes, he scored. I took the ball away from him in the end zone. While they were talking, the guy in the white hat, keep in mind it was a split crew, half from the Southwest Conference, half from the Southeastern Conference. The guy in the white hat was from the Southwest Conference, and he came running in, grabbed the ball away, put it down on the six-inch line, motion first down Texas, and overruled the touchdown. Well, of course, we protested for a moment, but it was to no avail, and so we left. The last play I ever played for the University of Alabama, we headed to the sideline. Coach Bryant never moved. He just stood there like a tall oak tree. As we walked off the field, one of my teammates behind me said, Coach, we scored. And with that, we all turned and looked at him to see his reaction. He took a short step back just to make sure that he, he got our attention. And he said if he'd have walked in, there'd have been no question about it. And that's the lesson that I took away with me on the last play I ever played for him and at the University of Alabama. And the lesson is this, if you want to accomplish something in life, you can't do just enough to get the job done because the world's referees might not make the right call either. You've got to go beyond what is expected and leave no room for doubt. And that lesson has driven me every day of my life. When I come to work, when I'm writing, everything I do, I try to go above and beyond to leave no room for doubt. How long had that game been played in 2018? How long do you think Birmingham's office would have been reviewing that call on the replay? <laughs> it wouldn't have taken very long. <laughs> yeah, without instant replay, it would have had a different outcome. But, you know, sometimes sometimes the hard times are the best lessons. You know, Bernard, I, I was very fortunate. I mentioned that I'd been around winners for most of my life. From the time that I played varsity football in high school through four years at Alabama, I played in five losing games all total. And so we weren't accustomed to losing. But you know what? I can go back and I can tell you almost all the details of all five of those games. But I can't tell you a whole lot about the games we won because that, you know, that that's what was expected. But when you when you do, when you lose, you go back, you reassess, what did I do? What didn't I do? If I get another chance, what am I going to do better than I did before? And I think that's what's instilled by the great coaches and the great teachers and the great mentors of all time. You certainly learn so much more from the losses or the disappointments. At least that's one of the, the takeaways that I'm gathering from you. And, and I'm sorry, I, this laid into our conversation that I have not mentioned Aunt Susan or, or the fact that the two of y'all are still very actively involved with the University of Alabama. And I'd like to talk for a minute what your current involvement is uh, with the school, because I know it's very beloved by both of y'all. Well, that's where we met. We met at the University of Alabama. We both have a degree from there. So the university was really good to us. And we've uh, enjoyed some success, and we wanted to get back. And we started a program about 14 or 15 years ago called the McCullough Medical Scholars Forum. And it was a weekend event where we bring together all the pre-med students on the campus and we'd have anywhere from 100 to 125 students and we would talk about the kinds of things they were going to learn uh, and, and they were going to see and experience in medical school and then a little bit what it was going to be like when they got out into practice. Well, two years ago we started working with the university to expand that weekend program to a full curriculum and we were able to get that done uh, last year. 
and it's called the McCullough Institute for Pre-Medical Scholars. The best way to describe it, if you can imagine a small college or a small institute within the university, and it's going to be a separate curriculum from what the general curriculum is, and it's going to be strictly for pre-med students. And I think we, we're going to get the cream of the crop and uh, to prepare them for medical school and also how to be a doctor and, and the kinds of things that they're going to face. So it's a one of a kind, it's never been done before. And so we're, we're really breaking new ground, but I think we're gonna have an opportunity to, to have an impact on pre-med students and uh, prepare them for medical school. So uh, it's, uh, it's already underway. We've hired our director, Dr. Ted Poston is our um, director and it's under the uh, College of Arts and Sciences. And um, we'll have 40 students each year. There'll never be any more than 160 students in the program, but these are going to be the best of the best when it comes to the pre-med students. And so hopefully the majority of them will be able to go on and finish their careers and, and become good doctors. Well, I know you're very proud of that. I also know that Susan has a program of her own that you're, you're establishing. In addition to the uh, McCullough Institute for Pre-Medical Scholars, the Susan N. McCullough uh, Art Benali uh, is also established as part of that program, and that'll be an art exhibition every other year. And it's very difficult. I mean, if you think it's difficult to get a book published, very difficult for an artist to be able to display his or her work in, in galleries. And so with this program, students who graduated from Alabama and are artists are going to be able to bring their art back to campus and have it exhibited as part of the of this finale and hopefully it'll bring former students that are artists from all over and bring people from around the world to view their art and, and expose them to to the art world so now these are two programs and uh, dr stuart bell at the university and, and uh, dr bob olin and bob pierce and kathy yarbrough they worked really really hard on this program and uh, we we were able to come to terms and endow this both of these programs are fully endowed and so um, hopefully they'll be around for a, a long 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 time well those are both wonderful examples of giving back to, to your beginnings and where you both had your start but in the in the book Galen you talk about being in the fourth quarter and I, I see no slowdown in your so-called fourth quarter right now writing books involving being involved with the university. I want to talk about, because I know you still have a very active practice at the Institute. I want you to yeah. tell us, because I know it's quite unique, and I, I have been uh, a, a patient of the Institute and the practice back in the day, but uh, I know it's quite unique in what you've set up. So I want you to share a little bit about what you've got going in, in Gulf Shores. Well, we have an Institute here where we do our own surgeries. We have our own operating rooms. We have our own anesthesia team. And what is unique about this is that we have on-site facilities where the patient can literally have their surgery done and roll out the door and go out into the uh, past the courtyard to villas. We have six villas where the patients can stay on-site and we can provide good care for them. We have trained caregivers, private duty caregivers, and uh, we can maintain their privacy. So it's uh, high profile individuals can come and have their surgery without anybody knowing about it, which is not always the case if you go into a hospital or a surgery thing. And then we have a, an excellent team 
of, of professionals. We, I, I only do facial plastic surgery. It's all I've ever done, uh, face and nose surgery. Um, and then Dr. Gregory Taylor, who, uh, in addition to our, our staff of two years ago, does full body comprehensive plastic surgery, breast surgery, tummy cups, liposuction. He also does hand surgery, cleft lip, cleft palate, cranial facial surgery. So he's one of the most highly trained plastic surgeons, that, a young surgeon that I know in this part of the country. Dr. Eula and David joined us just a few months ago. Dr. and David did a fellowship in facial plastic surgery with me, and she's a facial plastic surgeon, and she's really heading up a lot of the new innovative things in terms of skin care, skin cancer. Um, she runs the medical spa, total health spa that we've got in the skin center here. So we've got an, an outstanding team of doctors here. So it's just about anything that a person wants to do to look better, feel better, live longer, and, and be happier, we try to offer it here. And we've got other doctors and professionals here in the Institute who provide the non-medical services, weight management, uh, fitness programs, and those, those kinds of things, so that we can literally look after the entire individual. It's a holistic approach. It also doesn't hurt that you're only a couple of miles from the Gulf of Mexico and the world's most beautiful beaches, too. <laughs> That's true. Well, Gulf Shores, people don't realize oftentimes that we've got 26 miles of that white sandy beach that Destin, Florida, and Pensacola, and uh, all of those areas. It comes right over into Alabama. So, yeah, we Alabama has a beach, too. So anybody off out there looking for a place to go vacation or come for a medical getaway, uh, Gulf Shores is a place. Well, for those of you just joining us, thank you for, for watching so far. I'm with Dr. Galen McCullough from Gulf Shores, Alabama, and we're going to put in the comments section the link or the website to the Institute. I also want to mention briefly as we're getting close to wrapping up, and I really appreciate your time, Galen. In the back of, of your current book, Victory in the Game of Life, is also the other novels and books that you've written over time. And I don't, and here it is. I, well, I don't know if it's part of this, the, the one of the newer books that you wrote about elite facial. Uh, I think you may have it with you. You can. Oh, here it is. The elite facial surgery practice. And I really yeah. want to talk about that because that's very different than most of these other books. Share with us for a minute or so. What What is this book about? And what's the purpose? Well, this book was uh, published two years ago by the largest publisher of medical textbooks in the world. And, um, and, it, and it really is designed for the young surgeon trying to determine what they're going to do, what, what field of medicine they're going into, where they want to set up their practice, where they want to work in a hospital or they want to work in a private clinic or they want to set up their own office. It tells the doctor how to get started in practice. A lot of practice management things are in there. And then over toward the, the back of the book, something that might appeal to some of your listeners, uh, we talk a lot about risk management. And uh, I give talks at our national and international meetings on risk management. and one of the sections in there is entitled how to keep from losing in court and uh, I talk about courtroom etiquette and it really matters I think it makes a big difference and, and particularly if it's a jury trial uh, the jury is going to be evaluating the lawyers and they're going to be evaluating the witnesses and they're going to be evaluating the plaintiff and the defendant and really it's a matter of whether or not you're believable and whether they like you whether they trust you and there are a lot of things that one can do 
I think, to help gain, help gain the trust of a jury. And I've had the opportunity, I guess you would say, on a couple of occasions to be there firsthand. And fortunately, we were, we came out, on, we won uh, both of those situations. But I learned some of these things from my teacher. When I was doing my fellowship, he was sued. And he saw that I came into the courtroom during the entire trial. When I met, when he met with his lawyers, I was privy to all of that. The depositions, I was privy to all of that. And I learned a lot about that. And I've been expert witness in, in many uh, in cases. So um, I share that with the doctors. But this is something that also some of the attorneys watching the show may also be interested in seeing from the other side what, um, you know, how, how, how one acts and your deportment, your demeanor in the courtroom can sometimes make a huge difference. Thank you for sharing about that. And again, I'll put in the comment section the link to the website on how to purchase any of, of your books. We're getting very close to the end of the interview. And again, thank you. And this is... Thanksgiving each year really means a lot to a lot of people. But if you're in the Deep South and if you have any interest in college football, which if you're in the Deep South, you pretty much have to. And if you live in Alabama, the question is, who do you pull for? You can't pull for somebody else. It's either Alabama or Auburn. I know where your allegiance is. I know where mine and the rest of the families is. The tide has been rolling all year. Auburn is just kind of slugging along. You never know which version that you're going to get. The game's coming up in a couple of days at Bryant-Denny Stadium. I need for you to give us a little insight. What do you think about this game coming up? <laughs> well, I just think it's a whole season unto itself. Honestly, that game is a season unto itself. You can throw the records out. I've been part of both sides of that. When um, one team was highly favored, supposedly the better, the better team, and the other team ended up winning the game. And I've, I've been on the winning side and I've been on the losing side of that. And I'll, I'll tell you the story. Uh, you should never try to predict what a group of 18 and 22 year old kids are going to do on Saturday. Let me take you back one week. Who would have predicted that the score would have been tied uh, at halftime between Citadel and Alabama? If you'd have bet money on that one, you'd have been a big loser, right? So you never know what's going to happen. And there's a story that I'll share with you when people start asking me to predict football games. Coach Bryant tells me this story himself now. And he had a good friend, one of his best friends, loved to gamble. He'd gamble on two roaches crossing the, the, the floor. Uh, he, just, he just was a prolific gambler. So anyway, he was giving Coach Bryant a hard time one day because he let the quarterback kneel down on the one-yard line and, and they didn't break the line. And so he was giving Coach Brown a hard time about that. And he said, you must have had money on the game. And he did. And he said, I did. I had a lot of money on the game. And he said, you know, it just shows you what a damn fool you are. He said, you think you can predict what they're going to do on Saturday? He said, I live with them every day, and I don't have any clue what they're going to do when they go out there. And so that story stuck in my mind. So when you start predicting football, um, you really are pie in the sky now. Should Alabama win the game, all things being even, I think Alabama probably, talent-wise, is a, is a superior team. But that football bounces strange ways. And all it's got to do is bounce uh, the opposite way two or three times in the game. And as you know from being a college quarterback yourself, big things can happen, strange things can happen. So just sit back, sit back, uh, 
you know, take a Valium and just uh, let the game play out. <laughs> well, Galen, I, I can't thank you enough for your time this morning and, and for our interview. I, I wish you and Susan happy Thanksgiving and hope to, to break bread with you again sometime soon. Thank you, Bernard. It's been great to be with you. I'm so proud of you and David for what y'all have done. So keep up thank the good you. work. Okay. For those of you watching, thank you again for tuning in to Nomberg Law Live. We come to you every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific. I'm going to be signing off now, but we will catch you again next week. Take care.